law tech and the legal profession. Hello, welcome to 39 Essex Chambers AI and the Law podcast. I'm David Mitchell, a barrister at 39 Essex Chambers, and in this episode, I'm going to be discussing law tech and the legal profession. I'm joined today by Stephanie Boyce, the former president of the Law Society of England and Wales. Stephanie was admitted as a solicitor in 2002. In what has been a relatively short career, her rise has been stratospheric, culminating in her appointment as president of the Law Society from 2021 to 2022. She led the Law Society during the COVID-19 pandemic, and Stephanie was the first person of colour to be president. She now runs her own consultancy, Stephanie Boyce Consulting Limited. Stephanie, welcome to our podcast. I'd like to ask you first of all about the report you oversaw at the Law Society concerning law tech. And just in terms of definitions, what we mean by law tech is technologies that deliver legal services in place of traditional means. And this includes artificial intelligence. And law tech is also a term applied to the use of new technologies in the justice system. Now, in your report, you looked at law tech and importantly, its ethical implications. Can you please tell us about the work you did and what you found? Absolutely. So thank you very much for having me on. So as president in March 2021, to aid the governance of digital legal services, the society and I launched a set of ethical principles that we believe would guide the development and use of law tech. We were urging within those principles for greater accountability and regulation in this space. And the principles were a culmination of two years of work, including consultations with law firms, developers, academics, regulators. And the five principles that we came up with were compliance, lawfulness, capability, transparency and accountability. And we still believe that the regulators, and in fact, I wrote only recently to the Legal Services Board, to ask them the very question that I hadn't heard much from them in terms of AI, law tech, and what they were going to do and how they were going to regulate in this space, or were they going to issue guidance? And of course, that's something they have told me that they will come back to me on. Stephanie, now obviously you're no longer at the Law Society, and please answer this as freely as you would choose to, but Do you think there's a role to play or a need even, a mandate that diversity and inclusion be factored into the building, programming and developing of technologies? Absolutely. I gave a speech a couple of weeks ago to a room full of lawyers, and that's exactly what I spoke about. I spoke about the role of equality, diversity and inclusion in the tech space with a particular focus on AI and chat GPT. So, Just to put it into context, the technology sector is one of the least diverse sectors there is. Only 26% are female and just over 15% are from an ethnic minority background, according to Tech Nation. And so whilst we've seen progress on diversity in recent years, further steps need to be taken because if we look at those who are doing the programming, who are building and developing these models, they should take diversity into account because they bring their lived experience to it. And if that doesn't include experiences of diversity of thought, diversity of lived experience, and so forth, then we run the risk of biases creeping into these technologies. And we have seen some of the concerns that have been raised around facial recognition. A study from the University of California, Berkeley, where that research told us 
that ethnic minorities were being charged higher interest rates than white colleagues. All of those things raises concerns for individuals and the discriminatory effect and the consequences of those discriminatory effects on society and on individuals. You speak with this with fluency and also with conviction, Stephanie. And in terms of the example you give there of the research that was done at the University of California in the insurance industry, and reflecting on your own experience as a black person growing up in the UK, is this something which resonates with your own experience? Absolutely. When I read about this study and its conclusion, it took me back to my childhood where we had heard or understood lots of, well, the bank doesn't lend to ethnic minorities and so forth. And of course, you then have this study. And whilst there was no conclusion given as to why that may have been the case, that was what was being said. But you then have this study that says exactly that, that here you have algorithms that are making decisions about who should be charged interest rates and at what rate. And that is done based solely on someone's ethnicity. That is cause for concern. So in terms of the conclusions that the Law Society reached and focusing in particular on transparency and accountability, how do you suggest at law, Stephanie, this should be addressed Do we need legislation, which, for example, deals with an extension of the public sector equality duty to include private companies who are developing these types of technologies? Do we need the equivalent of equality by privacy and data protection legislation? And it'd be along the lines of equality by design. It'd be the equivalent. How do you consider that this should be dealt with in terms of the law? Absolutely. At the moment, there is no overarching legislation or regulatory body for artificial intelligence. And let's be clear, artificial intelligence has been with us for years and most of us have been exposed to it. It's on our smartphones or our TVs. It decides what programmes we should watch because it can sift out our preferences. It's on the internet when we go back to the internet. It can tell us the last page we were on and what potentially we might be looking for or what we might like. The difficulty is that The other thing about artificial intelligence, it touches so many areas of law already. Human Rights Act, the right to not be discriminated against, as well as the rights of autonomy. Employment rights deals with the need for fair procedures, grievances, dismissals and so forth. The General Data Protection Regulation, the right to object to an individual being subject to automated decisions, which is going back to the University of California Berkeley study that we were talking about. And the Equality Act 2010 that provides for further protection against discrimination. So all of that legislation already should be encompassing AI. The difficulty is the lack of transparency. So to go to your point about whether or not there should be some sort of stamp, because things have moved on significantly since I gave that speech in mid-May, that the government is now considering, according to today's newspaper, that they are considering some sort of mark that when something has been designed by artificial intelligence or is of deep fake or anything like that, that we know that to be the case, that will go towards that intelligence being signposted as being artificial or it's a fake. So we know to distinguish because that's the difficulty at the moment is that we don't know, we're not able to distinguish between what's fake and what is real. And of course, we saw this around the very start of the Ukrainian war 
where a video went viral of President Zelensky put down your arms and so forth. And that went viral. And of course, we now know that was not the case. It was a fake. His voice, his image had been mimicked. I see. So the solution obviously has to be as much technological as it has to be legal. In terms of just to look at this in the European context, you'll be aware that the European Parliament last week in its draft legislation on the topic of artificial intelligence decided, at least for the time being, this might be revised, that live facial recognition technology there should be an absolute ban so it cannot be used in public places by law enforcement authorities. Could I ask you what your thoughts are on that? Is that something you agree with? I think quite right. The EU Parliament last week decided that they are going to move forward with their Artificial Intelligence Act. It's now, as I understand it, out for consultation. Some have suggested that it goes too far And what this piece of legislation does is it classifies the AI technologies as high, medium or low risk. And it takes a more prescriptive approach than those outlined, certainly outlined by the British government currently and the US, which is a bit more relaxed. And I think what this government, the UK government, is intended to do is come somewhere in the middle of what the EU parliament has decided and what the US is currently doing. I think that until we are clear as to the technologies, the ability of the technologies, until we're clear as to what the risks are and until there are guardrails in place, then I do think in terms of facial recognition that we know there is a problem with facial recognition. It recognises and doesn't recognise certain skin colour, certain individuals. I'm also concerned as to where that data may end up. What is being done with that data? Where is it being held? What does it then go on to be used for? We know that facial recognition, and in fact, A couple uh, weeks ago, at a major public event, the police said, we are going to use facial recognition in this country. And it was almost not picked up by anyone. We know there are concerns with it. And that is where legislation needs to be clear or regulation needs to be clear. The government needs to be clear as to what can be done with artificial intelligence. So it's not about stifling innovation. It's not about stifling growth. It's about ensuring that there are appropriate guardrails, to borrow that term, in place. And I'm pleased that since, as I say, talking about this in May, that the government is now slightly shifting its position around its AI white paper and recognising that actually more needs to be done than what it has suggested in that white paper that incidentally closes for consultation this week. But if we take the example, Stephanie, of the power of this technology, and I'm looking here at live facial recognition programs, and it's a case of a person who needs to be urgently contacted. It might be a missing person, a vulnerable person, or it could be a dangerous criminal. It could even be a terrorist. Notwithstanding the issues which have been identified, and one only has to look at the Bridges case to do with algorithmic bias, is there not a case for law enforcement agencies being able to use these technologies in those sorts of scenarios where someone has to be contacted or identified urgently? The thing about AI is it is a tool that's in its infancy and one that can radically change how we work, how we live, how we are policed. And there are AI tools that will help the police, but there have to be appropriate mechanisms, guardrails in place to ensure that technology does not get into the hands of bad actors that will then go on to perpetuate some of those risks or concerns that individuals have. So the public needs to be assured 
that if this technology is going to be used by the police, it is going to be used appropriately, there is going to be transparency around its use, and people will have the right to challenge that information, that data. And people are told, what's it being used for? How long will it be kept? And so forth. And then looking a bit beyond the legal issues and looking at the effect on practice for lawyers, how do you consider that, yourself having been in practice as a solicitor, how do you consider that practice may or may not be changed by these technologies, in particular generative AI? There is no doubt that this is going to change the way that we work as lawyers. And there are many big law firms that are developing AI for themselves under their own control. And of course, in terms of the work that we do, in terms of drafting, research, disclosure and so forth. But at the moment, we know that there are some teething problems. And we saw this the other day where a litigant in person appeared in Manchester and of course had cited ChatGPT and that threw up issues. We saw another case of a lawyer in America who referenced case laws that ChatGPT had thrown up. And of course, they were made up. They were not real cases. So used correctly, AI, ChatGPT has the potential to increase productivity and efficiency, save money, and of course, create opportunities. But we've got to ensure that appropriate safeguards are deployed and there is transparency, there are guardrails, that the risks do not outweigh the efficiency and the productivity of these generative tools. I wonder as well, I mean, if there's the potential here or the risk in terms of causing divisional fragmentation within the profession. And what I mean by that, Stephanie, is this, that when you were president, you were looking after everyone from the sole practitioner through to the high street firm, through to the huge international law firms in the city. And as you've already pointed out, some of those huge international law firms are racing ahead in this area, and some have even developed their own bespoke technologies as variants of chat GPT, which they're using. In those circumstances, do you think there's the potential for, if you like, the elite to move forward with this, whereas the smaller firms, the sole practitioner, is left behind, not just because of technological competence and accessibility, if I can put it that way, but all of the issues that are likely to arise over regulation and complying with regulation if you're using these sorts of technologies, or is that just a slightly Luddite interpretation on my part? There is no doubt that there is a cost to this. And as I say, the bigger law firms are forging ahead with their own technology and developing their own AI models and indeed using it. The point is, there will, of course, be because of the cost involved. And we've seen government and the regulator put in pots of money to assist with the development of law tech. And one would hope that as a profession, that we will share that and develop those technologies together so that no one is unfairly left behind. But there is no doubt that there is cost to developing this. Of course, there are apps that allow certain AI tools to be used and at a reduced cost, some of those are free. So there is the ability to use that, but technology is moving on. We saw how technology transformed the legal profession, certainly the solicitor profession, during the height of the pandemic. The pandemic did perhaps in 48, 72 hours what would have taken the profession 10 years to do, and that was transform the way we use and interact with technology. 
There are so many things. We are being pushed in our daily lives, in our professional lives. We are being pushed more and more online. So if we can share that knowledge, use those hubs together, then obviously why not? Why not share that knowledge and that information and that use with others who potentially can't afford that? And that, of course, is what other, as I say, the regulator has got that pot of money. And indeed, the government has given some money to develop law tech, which is not as disruptive as fintech. But of course, we can see that this is going to be only a matter of time before law tech, when we see that around access to justice and the way we interact with lawyers and the justice system, it's only a matter of time before AI becomes a big reality for most of us. What you term there, disruption, do you think the disruptive potential of this technology is greater for solicitors than it is for the bar? Or do you think that all lawyers will be equally affected regardless of whether they're practising as solicitors or barristers? I saw an article recently by a leading academic and he doesn't distinguish between solicitors and barristers. He talks about lawyers. I mean, he goes on to talk about doctors and he goes on to talk about accountants and other professions. But certainly the law is one of those professions that he says is going to be terribly disrupted by these tools, by AI. So I don't see the distinguishment there, distinguishing between the two. What I see is, is that this technology is fast approaching, coming upon us. And we have to be aware as to how that is going to disrupt and change, as I say, the way we work, the way we live, the way we approach justice. If you look at the master of the roles, Jeffrey Voss, he talks about technology could help to make accessing legal services easier, more affordable in some instances. He talks about legal rights being cheaply and quickly vindicated by the use of technology. And he also goes on to caution. He says that the coming generation will not accept a slow paper-based and courthouse-centric justice system, that the use of technology by the courts is not optional but inevitable and essential. And in terms of those suggested positives for the general public, for clients, if you're working as a lawyer, or people who are accessing legal services in the court system, do you agree with those views of the master of the roles? There is no doubt that technology is going to change the way we work and the way we access justice. And we've seen that in some instances if you get a penalty fare or if you get a speeding ticket, you go on and it can be a tick box exercise. The difficulty is, and I have this difficulty in so many different spaces, the push towards online around chatbots and so forth. Most of us, most of the time, want to speak to another human being when we have a complex issue, a complex legal problem. We don't want it to be a tick box exercise that we go online, tick a few boxes, and therefore you go that way because your problem fits into that box or you go that way because your problem doesn't. What most of us want, if we are going to move towards a justice system, and as I say, we saw some of this during the pandemic, court hearings, where we could attend a court hearing online from our own home. But for the most part, there was an inequity there around people in institutions, or in prisons, in care homes, hospitals, and so forth, where most people want to speak to, they want to be in the presence of their legal representative. And the difficulty is if there is not appropriate signage, so we can move online, we can do all of that, but we have to ensure that there is appropriate signage, that people know their rights, and that goes back to the point that I make around legal rights. 
that we have a big deficiency in this country around people knowing their rights because legal rights mean absolutely nothing. If you don't know what those rights are and you don't even know when those rights are being taken away and you don't know where to go to for those rights, even if you knew that you had a legal issue, then going online is just going to further complicate problems. More people perhaps are going to tick a box which may be the wrong box, agree to a speeding fine because it's just and it's quick. But the consequences of having that conviction on your record may have implications for you to be able to get credit where you might live, where you might work and so forth. So there's got to be appropriate signposting. And I think also we also have a big digital skills gap in this country where lots of people, lots of adults do not know how to use or do not have the skills to be able to use the technology. They also do not have the equipment. They don't have the hardware, the infrastructure. There are huge sways up and down, not only in this country, but in Wales, where individuals' homes do not have access to broadband. So a simplification of saying that you can go online and do certain things, there has to be an option that if you cannot or do not want to, because I know now there are lots of people who are pushing back against the use of cards, preferring to use cash, because what we're seeing is the anonymity that came with using cash being replaced with cards is that you leave a trail behind you. What is happening to that data? Who is harvesting it? Where's it ended up? So all of these concerns, as public awareness grows around AI, its use and data, privacy, people are going to be concerned. We have to ensure that nobody is left behind. I think it's such an important point that to do with digital literacy and also access to the internet, the technology, because this debate, whether it's framed in a legal context or otherwise, seems to assume that everyone is online and everyone has access remotely to all of these technologies at their fingertips. And as you point out, that clearly isn't the case. And fundamentally, that's an issue which is to do with access to justice. So finally, Stephanie, thank you for those thoughts, which are absolutely fascinating. Could I broaden this out? And I'll ask you a question which Catherine Apps, Casey and I, who are conducting these interviews, are going to be asking all of our interviewees. And it's looking at AI, not just in the legal context, but a bit more broadly. And if I can ask you to give your thoughts on the effect that you think AI might have on humanity. And I'm going to ask you to put this on a scale of 0 to 10. And I've called this in the notes I prepared the dystopian Panglossian scale, if you can forgive that attempted literary flourish. What I mean is that at 0 at the dystopian end is the doomsday scenario end of the world. 10 is the utopian panacea, cure for cancer, and climate emergency type scenario. If you had to place your prediction to do with the effect of AI on humanity on that scale of 0 to 10, where would it be? I think due to the pervasive nature of AI and the growing use of the growing use of it, and not only just in the law, we have to remain committed to a responsible approach to it, to make systems more fair and inclusive and transparent, test systems appropriately so they identify any potential biases, so that they engender the trust and confidence of users and those who it's used on. And we have to make sure that any current systems remove biases, stereotypes. And in doing so, we can ensure 
that AI serves as a tool for creating a more just and humane society. Because as I said, I am for innovation, I am for growth, but I'm concerned about the risk that AI potentially could perpetuate. So on your scale, I would probably go halfway at the moment, because I think on the one end, there are the risks that the, clearly the European Parliament has identified with some of the safeguards and restrictions they have put in place. But equally, AI has transformed the way we work and will continue to transform the way we work and live. But my concern is that we don't leave people behind and we don't unfairly treat people because of AI. And we've seen a number of schools are now thinking about the approach that they need to take to exams some schools moving back to oral examination because of the concerns around writing papers and the use of AI and ChatGPT and so forth. So we've got to ensure that the discourse that potentially could come from AI has appropriate guardrails around it. So just to confirm, Stephanie, that's on the dystopian Panglossian scale. I've marked you down as a five. Is that right? Yeah, I, I'm in the middle. So yeah, whatever the middle is. <laughs> we'll give that a five. <laughs> so I'm for innovation and growth, but I'm concerned as to the risks that possibly are out there. And of course, the one thing I should say about law tech at the moment is it is very lawyer based. Most of the tools that are out there are very lawyer focused, lawyer led but not so much towards clients and court users. And I think we have to find that balance. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much, Stephanie, for your time this morning. That has been extremely illuminating and we very much look forward to our listeners being able to hear your thoughts. Thank you. Thank you.